Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Michael Livingston, who is a professor of English at the Citadel. He has a very interesting career that transcends disciplinary lines, though, and we'll be talking about his latest book called Never Greater Slaughter, Brennan Burr and the Birth of England. Mike, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And good, I, and good job pronouncing that. Oh, well good. I got the Bruner Bear. All right. <laughs> yes, you Okay. Did. First, let's talk a little bit about you because having been in the academy, you've got an incredibly interesting career. You have a history degree. Yeah. You have a medieval studies degree. Uh-huh. You have a master's in English, and then you got a PhD in English. Yeah. But you're really a military historian. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so... I've, I've been really fortunate. I've been very fortunate that I've uh, been able to kind of go where my interests lie. And when I was in graduate school, um, actually getting my first master's degree in medieval studies, there was a, a visiting professor whose specialization was in paleography, which is the uh, ability to sort of read uh, ancient medieval manuscripts, which are all handwritten. Pretty much trans- I mean, uh, translating medieval manuscripts. Right, right. So, you know, all, all our material, it's not, it's not printed. Somebody wrote it by hand, and you have to be able to, to understand what that says and, and make it available for other people. And so I thought, you know, as a historian, the ability to, to find scraps of information that other people might have overlooked and understand it, take it, and use it is going to be very valuable. So I picked that up, and... That just kind of led me down a path into that world, which is ultimately in in this country, an English degree world. And then because of having an English uh, PhD coming out of of doctoral program, that then got me jobs, uh, (laughs) job offers in English. Uh, So, yeah, I teach I teach literature. I teach Beowulf. All that good fun. You do teach Beowulf. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, yes. I, did, I didn't realize that things like Beowulf and Canterbury Tales were still in the, in the classroom oh, these days. Man, I was just teaching uh, Chaucer this week. Uh, I, love, I love Beowulf. I love Chaucer. Um, you know, there's nothing like, you know, thinking about Beowulf, right? You're talking about something a thousand years ago that that was written down. And it's our language, of course, but it's old English. You know, if, if you know, listeners don't know, uh, you know, so the first lines of Beowulf, what way Gardena in yard daum theod kuninga thrim yafrunon, who thought Athelingus eln fremadon? Like, that's our language. And it's so cool that that's our language, but it's so foreign sounding. And I think we learn a lot, and I certainly try to teach my cadets a lot about how that reflects on our, our heritage and our, our sort of the, the train behind us that's led us to this point. Uh, through language and history. Obviously, you went to several different schools, but where did you start out, and how did you end up at, in Charleston? Uh, where did I start out? Well, I mean, I was I was born and raised out in out, out west. I'm a I'm a western fellow. Where? Where? Uh, Colorado and New Mexico. Oh, so uh, yeah, that's the reason I don't uh, quite have the accent of, of South Carolina here. Then you went to Baylor. You, you you stayed out. You stayed out west. Yeah, I went I went to Baylor. They offered me a scholarship, which was awesome. My first master's degree was in at the Medieval Institute, which is in Michigan. And then uh, the second master's and PhD were in Rochester, New York, uh, where I was working uh, specifically with one of the foremost specialists in the world on, on editing manuscripts. Okay. Um, so that was kind of my draw there. And then, you know, as, as you all know, the job market is, is pretty tight um, these days. So I applied to kind of anywhere that would take me. And the Citadel offered me a, a position. I had hardly heard of the Citadel, uh, frankly, at that point. All I knew of it was from the, the fact that it was where Robert Jordan had gone. Uh, it was on the back of all his novels. And I uh, came and did my visit and completely and head over heels fell in love with Charleston and fell in love with South Carolina. I took the job. I've been here ever since. You've been there here? 15 years. Yeah, so it's 16 now, something yeah. like that. <laughs> it's great. I, I, love, I love South Carolina and love Charleston. So you, you are a professor of English. You teach creative writing as well as Beowulf and, and Canterbury Tales, which used to be a part of every first-year student, at least in my days at Davidson. We, we did the whole Canterbury Tales. Bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you also write fiction. I do, yes. I write, I write novels. That was something I wanted to do. When I was uh, when I was a kid, and just kind of yeah tinkered with it on the side, and 
by a winding road, I uh, got an got a offer to do some novels for a major publisher. And it's been nice to have that kind of creative you know, release, if you will, on the side, right? Academic work can be kind of uh, all-encompassing mm-hmm. and, and your life becomes nothing but, you know, I mean, in the case of the, of, of the book we're going to be talking about, the 10th century in, in England, there's only so much time you can spend there without kind of going insane. And so <laughs> the, the ability to, to step outside of that and, and do creative work has been really beneficial to, to me. And I've been very fortunate that my, my department welcomes that. You know, they're like, great, you're publishing more books. Well, you know, that, that is great to hear because some other English departments with which I'm familiar, the fact that you wrote fiction, oh, heaven forbid, he's yeah. not doing anything serious. <laughs> and, yeah. and even more heaven forbid, they sell. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. It was, it was actually one of the things when I was interviewing at the Citadel, I was so impressed with because I kind of asked this question. I said, well, I've just sold a few short stories. How do you feel about that? Right. That's not the medieval stuff. Uh, and I would ask this question of any interview I, I was doing. And if a few of those interviews, they would say, like, that's cute and everything, but stop, right? Don't, don't do that. Uh, or at least don't tell us about it. You don't get credit for it. The Citadel was like, my God, you're publishing. Please just publish whatever, like as long as you're publishing. Yeah. So I've had the freedom to go where, I, I, where my interests are and where my kind of heart is with any given book, which is an, an enormous, wonderful thing. All right. Well, before we get into today's book, just in a, a few words, what are the settings for your novels? Uh, so 10th, 10th century England, 21st century U.S. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the trilogy that's out, they're labeled as historical fantasy. But basically what it is, is if you looked at, at Antony and Cleopatra and the rise of Octavian uh, to Augustus Caesar, what would that story be if certain objects of, of mythology slash legend, like say the Ark of the Covenant, what if that actually was real and around and played a role in that, in that story? Um, so they're kind of labeled as historical fantasy or some people call it a secret history because or, or, the facts of history don't change. I was going to say, is it, or is, it's what some people call counterfactual history. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the facts don't change, but the, the story that's behind those facts okay. is changing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, n- now let's get to the story where the facts are there as, <laughs> as you've uncovered them. First of all, folks, for those who like fiction dealing with Napoleonic era, medieval England, Bernard Cornwell wrote the foreword to this book. And Mr. Cornwell does live in Charleston, but he and Mike are, are friends. And being a Cornwall fan, that was one of the things that attracted me to buying, buying your book. <laughs> Plus, the reviews that you got in interesting places. Uh, I read regularly lots of book reviews, and all of a sudden, here's this yank. This was an, <laughs> a, writing about the birth of England. It just didn't jive. So I got the book. I was fascinated. <laughs> Alfred made the call, and here you are. And here I am, and I appreciate the call so much. Yeah, it. Uh, well, just a month ago or something, it was front page of the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. and uh, I, uh, which was wonderful. It was great, but I couldn't help but think of all of the confused stockbrokers <laughs> in New York trying to figure out, like, what, what do we do with this? Is the market going up? Is it down? I don't know. What does the 10th century got to do with any of it? It's been fun. Well, let's get right into there. You know, I had some pretty good undergraduate and graduate courses in English history. Uh, I never heard of this place. Yeah. Uh, so this is kind of one of the one of the exciting things about, about Brunenberg, this is one of the most important battles in British history. And it is certainly the battle that has the, the biggest claim to determining what exactly England even is. So we're talking about Bosworth Field, Agincourt. Agincourt, Crecy, Hastings. Brunenberg deserves to be right in there with us. Okay. All right. Great. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. So what happens is... Uh, and the, and the, the way I kind of usually approach this is the battle that is kind of closest to what Brunenberg represents is actually a thousand years after Brunenberg, uh, which is the Battle of Britain. The Battle of Britain is an, an existential fight, right? 1940, you know, Hitler's trying to take over. Uh, and, and, and victory in that fight is survival. It is the fact that the, the, the English do not suc- succumb. To the, to, the, to the Nazis. That's victory. The same is true, essentially, of what Brunenberg is for England in the, in the 10th century. 
All right, let's describe yeah. pretty much territorially what are you considering England in, the, in 937? Yeah. So when we're talking about England in the 10th century, we're talking about something that is still being formed. If listeners probably know anything about pre-1066, pre-Hastings England, it's probably King Alfred the Great who was kind of forced back into the, into the swamps uh, by the Vikings and manages this kind of heroic stand and pushes the Vikings back. Well, that happens in the middle of the ninth century. And the, the succeeding couple generations expand England, this, this kind of nascent thing that's becoming England, expands that out like step by step by step. So that by 937, those borders basically look like what we would now recognize as England, up to uh, you know, the, uh, the southern portions of Scotland, to Wales, uh, Cornwall in a sort of hazy, hazy space. They've basically taken all of that. And in doing so, they've upset a lot of people. Uh, they've upset, in particular, three large, uh, large kings. There's lots of kings around, but these three big kings. Because you've got lots of kings running around at this right. time. Okay. Right. Yeah. You've got. I'm. I'm the king of this. Of this but little these island. Are the three, these are the three biggies. These are three biggies. These are the three biggies that are that are left there. And it's the king of Scotland. His name is Constantine. Constantine the second. The king of uh, the Strathclyde Britons. So this is near like Carlisle, uh, where he's located. And then you've got across the Irish Sea, the king of Dublin, who's, who's what we sort of call in, in scare quotes, if you need to, Viking. I was, yeah, was going to say he's actually a Viking. Yeah, he's, he's a Viking. So he's, he speaks Norse and all that jazz. And, and they've taken residence in Dublin and on and off in York. But at this point, the English have taken York. So these three kings who have been historically enemies with each other. That is to say, the Vikings were killing the Scots. Scots were killing the Vikings. Vikings were killing the Bretons. Bretons were killing... These were all enemies of each other. But in 937, they set aside all of their differences. And we, we have no records of exactly what that conversation was. All we know is that they all band together against a common enemy and say, let's go kill the English. Let's get Athelstan out of the way. Let's wipe the English off this island. Again, the king of England here, Athelstan. Athelstan, yeah, Athelstan. He's the, actually the grandson of Alfred the Great. And so they've all banded together. Let's all get Athelstan. Let's wipe him off. And this is what happens at Brunenburg is they meet and Athelstan actually wins. So the English win this battle and it is an existential fight. They, the English don't win land. They don't win a bunch of gold, what they win is they get to continue to be. And in that sense, uh, it's the reason I sort of always you know, correlate it to the Battle of Britain because it is this existential thing. There's, there's no future for England if, if this goes the other way. It really is for all the cards. In one place, in one fight, it was determined whether or not England would survive. And this was it, the Battle of Brunenburg. Mike, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Michael Livingston about his new book, Never a Greater Slaughter, Brunenburg and the Birth of England. It, it, it's puzzling, given, it, given its importance, that other than some documents, some of them, 200 years after it, which mention it, it's not in the span of English history. Even Athelstan is not all that well known. Yeah, it's curious that this, that this fight, for all its importance, does get kind of forgotten. Now, it, that's starting to change. Athelstan, there was just a big poll done in England, a sort of uh, World, World Cup of Kings and Queens of England that they just did. You know, this king is, who's better, that king or that queen or whatever, and the ultimate victor in all this, it came down to the finals was uh, Queen Elizabeth I and Athelstan. And Athelstan actually won. Um, oh, all right. Now, this was a – describe that very briefly. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So this was a, a – uh, it was run on, on Twitter social media. Okay. That this week, it's this king versus this king. Who do you think is the better king? Who's the more important king or queen? And it was like the, the final, final four or whatever. You know, we did this – you know, the Sweet 16 got to the final four. And ultimately, the, the championship, you know, fight, match, if you will, was Queen Elizabeth I, uh, you know, pretty well known, pretty big deal. And King Athelstan had actually uh, gone through all this as kind of like the underdog. 
And ultimately, the polls said Athelstan was the greatest king or queen of England. And so th- this is open to the public. This yes. is, is just yeah. isn't his. But that tells you that certainly in England, this is mostly in England, right? In the UK? Mostly, yeah. I mean, it was open to anything, but I, I, I imagine most people were, were from the UK. Um, I obviously take full credit for this uh, as a result of my book. That's, I always say that's a lie. Uh, <laughs> that's nothing to do with it. Don't be immodest. Of course you should take credit for it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Athelstan, Athelstan's making a comeback. Um, and it is, I think, a lot of it centered on Brunenburg, that, that this is getting attention now. And people are recognizing how important this was. And it's been forgotten. Perhaps it's the, the shadow of the Battle of Hastings in 1066, which is an enormous event. Absolutely enormous event, and maybe that kind of erased this, but it, it's it's coming back. Well, and people forget that the Battle of Hastings uh, meant that everybody that counted was Norman French. They weren't English. That's right. That's uh, the reason that our language is no longer that Beowulf I just said, but instead changes to something like like Chaucer, right? Juan that April with the shore is so the drought of March. That's that's French coming in. Do you think perhaps in the UK this is because folks are this is post Brexit? Certainly, you know, Scotland's thinking Scotland, Wales is thinking Wales, and people who live in England are thinking more and more about England itself, not as British. It's quite possible. I think that, that Brexit has, uh, you know, sort of reawakened this question of what is England, mm-hmm. who defined it, who created it, uh, how is it fashioned, how should it continue? And Athelstan is, is absolutely a key figure in that. I mean, you know, this battle is this battle is the thing. A lot of people say it's the birth of England, and I sort of play with that in the subtitle of, of, mm-hmm. of my book. Um, I actually don't think it's really the birth of England, but it's certainly the coming of age of it, if you will. You know, this is the moment it's going to survive now. Because after this battle, what we think of as England, although it actually included a little bit of Scotland at the time, was united as one kingdom. And, and had defended itself as such. Yes. Yeah. This is this is now these this attempt to push back those borders to to actually roll them. <laughs> they wanted to to roll them all the way to the sea. Um, doesn't it doesn't happen? It doesn't work because because uh, Athelstan wins, and it's an enormous, such an enormous battle. It's actually, I mean, it's a fairly violent age, and you know, fifty years after the battle, a man named Athelward is able to just say the great battle. He doesn't give it. An, he doesn't have to name. It. He just says the great battle. And everybody knew. You would expect. Everybody would know. That's Brunenburg. Uh, you don't even have to name it. We know what you mean. Because it was so, so massive and so important. The battle took all day, our sources tell us. Well, and that, that's unusual. I mean, that's inc- I was going to say, that is unusual. Very unusual. Most battles, um, it would always surprise uh, you know, folks in Hollywood, but most battles end very, very quickly. Um, they're very fast. It doesn't take long for somebody to break. And the moment a break happens in the lines, it tends to spread like wildfire through it. You know, as I tell my, my cadets, you know, most people in battle in, in, in pre-modern age, they died getting it in the back uh, as they were trying to run away. All right. Well, let's get the, the forces there. Obviously, you, this is the age of knighthood. May, might not quite be in full flower. I mean, so you've got these guys in armor on horseback. So, uh, some. Probably not many, actually. Not okay. Not right. many. They would have ridden there, but they wouldn't have uh, been mounted into battle. Right, this would that, have been shield wall warfare. Okay. Yeah. And then what about the just the plain old foot soldiers who just might have a spear or a pike or yeah, that's they're most not going to have a sword, right? That's yeah. This would have been a fight. Uh, I mean, you've got you know four armies coming together. You've got the English army, and it's meeting this allied army of Scots, Britons, and Vikings from Ireland, um, who've all come there. Now, they, they all more or less share the same tactics. They're not terribly complicated. Um, you line men up in whatever they've got, whether it's just the clothes they've got. Maybe they've got some leather on. Maybe they're, they're really fortunate and they've got, you know, chain on, like a kind of male armor, right, of linked rings. Uh, a few people might have had some, some bit of plate, but nothing like sort of knights in unshining armor that we imagine. So, so that age is still to come. That's we are centuries from that. Yeah. So okay. this is really uh, everybody line up, uh, you know, shield to shield. So we make a shield wall. It's called, and then the walls would more or less kind of press together. And yeah, you're poking with whatever you got—a spear, a sword, a, a right. club. What are, the, what are the shields made of? Wood. Wood. Yeah, they're going to be wood covered with uh, a, a, a kind of leather, 
and ringed sometimes, uh, if you're if you're lucky, with metal to hold it all together. Okay, so we do have spears. Yes, we do have pikes. Yep. We haven't gotten into the medieval thing of these the hammers with all of the. I mean, those big. Like a big mace kind of thing? Yeah, that looks like the COVID virus on a stick. (laughs) Yeah, actually, those weren't used much uh, in the Middle Ages uh, in general. And so, Um, but we've got big swords, small... uh, The swords are not very large, but they're, you know, I still wouldn't want to be poked with one. They'll go through you. We have uh, swords, we've got daggers, we've got clubs, we've got uh, lots and lots of spears, uh, people throwing rocks. It is an absolutely brutal way of warfare. Even probably a couple of farmers with pitchforks. Oh, yes. Oh yes, you're fighting with whatever whatever you've got, right? This isn't. There's not a really a central armory from which standardized weapons are being kind of provided to the army. The army is is kind of what we think of as like a, a militia, right? People are gathering up. We have to go to war. They're going to make us go to war. What do I have that I can fight with? And so maybe you know, my father fought in a fight and managed to steal a sword off a dead man, and I have that in my family. So. Hey, good for me. But if I didn't, I'm fighting with whatever okay. I've got. All right. Knighthood might not be in flower, but we do have manners and liege lords. And if, if the liege says we're going to war, you're just going to drop your plow and pick up your yeah, whatever. If the, if, if the powers that be say you're going to war, you're going to go to war. So, yeah, there is this sense in which as Athelstan realizes this is coming, as he's heading towards the field, um, his army is sort of like coming in from the farm fields, if you will, behind him. And we're talking, oh, 8,000, 10,000 men uh, on each side that ultimately come together here in this spot. I mean, that's huge, particularly for this time. It is absolutely enormous. Okay. I'm looking at the map. Now, you've got a great, great map. Tell your military historian, great map. <laughs> um, we like those. And first of all, the Irish have got to get there. Yeah. The Scots have got to come down. But what's interesting is in what is England— the Roman roads are still there. Right. So the, they have a way to maneuver, but the rest of them don't. They're not any roads up in Scotland. So Atherston knows they're coming, but it wasn't easy to get everybody there at, at one time. Yeah, this is an incredible logistical effort. It's, it's really quite extraordinary, and it's so heartbreaking that we don't have sources from the alliance side, if you will, from the Vikings, Scots, and, and, and the Britons. We have some later stuff that's kind of from the Norse perspective, but it's, it's got all kinds of problems with it. So we don't really have whose idea was this, first of all. Like somebody came up with the idea. And how did they convince the others to take part? What exactly was their agreement? What were they, what were they offering each other? What was the trade-off? We don't know any of that. You're absolutely right that the Roman road network is, is essential to this. And you know, almost any battle I look at, whether I've been called in to... to uh, to try and find an ancient battlefield uh, in Greece or, you know, something medieval like this or something later. Anything where I'm, I'm called in to investigate a site to try and find it, literally the first thing I do is where are the roads, right? Where is the road network? Because armies require roads. You've got wagons. You've got, you know, 10,000 men. You're not just going to traipse around through you, the field. You, you got to feed them. And you got to feed them. Like, so... Logistically, how does this happen? And so roads are essential. And obviously in this period, the Roman road network is still there. I mean, you know, it underlies much of the motorway system today. It's vital. And so these are, these are the avenues through which people would move. And you're quite right that there's not really a good road network from Dublin, Ireland to England somewhere. And uh, so these, these came by ship. Um, all three of these armies... What we're told um, from the, a wonderful poem that's in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle called the Battle of Brunenburg, uh, what we're told is that they all come by ship, a huge, massive fleet. Do the Irish just go across the Irish Sea? or? Yeah. So they all would have converged at a single point. Now, the big uh, kind of famous thing and the thing that's gotten me in a lot of, a lot of hot water um, has always been this question of where is Brunenburg? Because... If you look at a map of England, there's no spot, Brunenburg. Uh, and so everybody has always kind of like wanted it uh, kind of, you know, in, the, in their garden, right? You know, I, I live where it was. It was mine. Any, anywhere that has a B and R and an N in its name has kind of claimed to be Brunenburg. Uh, and so a lot of, lot of what I'm doing here is, is 
saying, you know, no, it, it's, it's not in London. Sorry. That doesn't work. Logistically, it doesn't work. Uh, you know, linguistically, it doesn't work. Like, for all these reasons, it hey, doesn't work. Hey, look, we've got that fight in South Carolina. Where was Allianz settlement in 1526? Was it really <laughs> Was it really in Horry County? Was it really in Beaufort County? Or was it down in the Georgia Isles? Yeah. And obviously, I'm not going to get into that fight, y'all. Uh, I'm, I'm not asking you to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is a thing, right? If we, and it's, you know, it's not just this. It's not just Brunenberg. It's anytime there's a big historical event and it's not, you know, confirmed and locked down, uh, people will have a vested interest in putting it where they are. But this is where they want it in their backyard. Yes. Yeah. When they, yeah. In this case, there is a difference there. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. All right. So given the fact that where you locate the battle, yeah. and that's part of the story, Yeah. it's in Western England. Yeah. So if the Scots are going to get there and they're all by ship, they got to either go around north, around the Orkneys and the Hebrides, or they got to come south and go through the English Channel and up to the Irish Sea. How, how do they? They're actually going to come across to Glasgow, uh, modern Glas- where modern Glasgow is, which is on the correct side of England, if you will. Okay. So they just crossed to that side of the kingdom, got yeah. at the port there, and then just oh, came oh, down oh, the coastline. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, sort of, they probably the Scots came down, met the Strathclyde Britons, who were also, you know, right below that, if you will. Yeah. Met them, and then they continued on and met the the force from Dublin, where where, where I'm locating it, and and I'm I'm not the first to locate it there, but where I'm defending this uh, location is a place called Bromborough, uh, which is on what's called the Wirral Peninsula, basically right across the the Mersey River from from Liverpool, and this is a a prime location that matches a lot of our evidence, matches in fact all the evidence we've got for where it would make sense for this battle to be. And you say it lasted almost a day. Yes. That's what our sources say, is it lasted from, from first light until the evening. All right. Do we have anything exciting like, you know, Richard looking for a horse, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, kings being killed and that kind of thing? Uh, we do in one source. So there's, there's a number of sources for this. And one of the fun things about, you know, the Middle Ages or, or ancient warfare, pre-modern stuff especially, is trying to to suss out the truth between all these various perspectives. Uh, you know, I mean, this is history in a nutshell, right? As I've got four witnesses to the same thing, all telling various stories. What is the thing that can explain them all best? And in the case of, of, of Brunenburg, we have, because it was so important, so big, a surprising number of sources. And one of those is a saga. So this is a Viking story. It's in, uh, in a saga called Egil's Saga. And it has a battle that is by a different name. It's called Vinhaler. It's the Battle of Brunnenberg, but it is a, a, a story of the battle. It's wonderful. It's got all this heroic, you know, this main character did this awesome thing to that guy and this backstabbing. It's great. It's great drama. It's very unlikely to be at all true. It doesn't, it doesn't match up with anything really. It's a great story. Not very true. Uh, so when we kind of set that, cool stuff aside, what we're left with is a lot of uh, far less detailed, uh, far less kind of granular stuff. It's all more broad stroke. We know that Athelstan, you know, hewed the shield wall. He broke the shield wall, right? So there was some kind of push that happened where the English actually shattered that line of, of shield men. How did they do so? I don't know. Uh, our sources don't say, right? I mean, I can... We, we've forgotten bow. They would have had bows and arrows. There would have, there would have been bows and arrows. There's, there's arrows flying. There's spears, rocks. I, it's all day this would have been happening. I mean, you know, I don't want to get too graphic for the listeners, but it, it's extraordinary um, what this must have looked like and been like to be there. But at some point, that, that shield wall got broken. And then the, the allies are, are routed. They, it is a running fight as they're fleeing back to their ships so that they can escape. And, and at that point, it's, it's night. And you made the point that just because they were fleeing, the battle didn't stop, is that... Oh, yeah, they were run down. They, they were pursued. Yeah. And yeah, it would have been. And, and at that point, you might have had some people get on horseback to try and run them down. Um, but again, it's not, it's not going to be kind of like knight in shining armor stuff. It's, it's just somebody on horseback swinging whatever they've got 
against your 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 head at that point. I mean, there is no cavalry charge. Yeah, not not in the way not in the way that we imagine it. You know, yeah. like from you know the the American Revolution or something. You know, yeah. I, I guess so. When people think medieval, and the, I, I was guilty, I was thinking there was a, a group of knights all yeah. all in full armor and what have you. Well, that's cool. Uh, that's cool, but this was not the age yet. Uh, one of my next books that's coming out is on the Battle of Crecy, which is one of these great knighthood kind of battles. And even then, I mean, the English, they're fighting on foot. Um, they're receiving a, a, a French charge. Uh, that French charge is getting mowed down by arrows, but they're coming out actually a line of infantry. The, the English knights have dismounted to receive that charge. Part of that is because in a defensive position anyway, that's how you receive a cavalry charge. You get, get off your horses, line up, and take it. And the, and the horses don't want to come into you, so <laughs> this is going to work pretty well. One of the fun things about uh, doing military history and medieval military history in particular is that uh, you learn how many things you have to unlearn, right? All these things that I thought were true when I started studying whatever it was, I quickly find out, oh, yeah, that's not right. I got that, I got that from that bad movie or whatever. Uh, I got that from Disney. I don't know what I got that from. That's not how it worked, right? The king is not in the high tower. You go and visit a castle, you realize... The king's not going to be up there. That's too many dang steps. You know, you, some poor slob goes up there. King's going to be down by the fire. So you'll you learn pretty quickly how many things uh, aren't what you thought. And that's part of the fun of it. I love learning. Well, given what you're saying, the weapons that fought, shouldn't there have been at least some archaeological evidence or the fact that they were there was not a lot of heavy armor? You know, if I'm some poor serf and all I've got is my shield and a spear, that might not leave any archaeological evidence. So this is a big kind of question is where is the archaeology? And when we you know, first identified that this site near Bromborough is likely to be Brunenburg, and, and we did that through a lot of, of different evidence. Would you say we? Who are you? Uh, so a, a number of scholars have been working on this case long before I was. Um, in 2011, I sort of organized a, a group sort of internationally of these scholars who are working the case to put together a, a single book. This is a very scholarly book, unlike the, the book that, that, that we're talking about here. Um, a very scholarly book that just, here's all the evidence we've got. And it was called Battle of Brunenburg, a case book. And in so doing, we also, we said, here's all the evidence, make of it what you will, but also here's what we make of it. And what we make of it is the battle happened on the Wirral near Bromborough. Um, there's linguistic reasons for that. The word Bromborough, if you sort of hit the rewind button on history in Old English, is Brunenburg. So that's a pretty good indication. It's kind of where it ought to be as far as getting all these fleets there. It's a good coalescing place. There's genetics and sociolinguistics of the people who lived in this area were actually heavily Norse. So it's a good kind of home, home territory, if you will, for a kind of a beachhead invasion. So there was lots of reasons to kind of put an X on the map. And that's what I did. So on the, the front of that book, I have a map, and it says Brunenberg, and there's a, the cross swords kind of thing. There it is. And immediately started getting bombarded with all kinds of, of, of horrific hate mail, which was shocking and surprising. Lots of fun. Good times. But the reason we, we kind of thought it was there was, you know, for all this, just the simple, this is the puzzle pieces go together. Well, in the years since, archaeology has started to be done in this area. Now, it's not heavily well-funded. This is uh, a group called We're All Archaeology that are doing what they can, negotiating with, uh, you know, a farmer. Mm -hmm. Can we get into this field for a little bit, right? You know, that's without a, a huge ton of money, you can't, you can't buy out the farmer's season, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to just kind of nip in where you can. And that's what they've been doing, but they've been finding artifacts. They found some arrowheads, and they're arrowheads that date to the 10th century. That's, well, that's when our battle is. They're arrowheads that are typically associated with Irish-Scandinavian context, that is sort of Vikings from Ireland. So the arrowheads were not uniform. It's just like arrowheads of, of American Indians. Different tribes had different shapes. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So when, whenever we find artifacts, yeah, we sort of, through typology, figure out, you know, what is this, right? Well, this is this kind of sword. This is this kind of, of arrowhead. So yeah, these are, these are arrowheads that, that date to the right time period, are associated with the right kind of folk. Um, in a place that we already thought the battle happened. So it's starting to look, starting to look pretty good, right? Until we find, you know, like a sign, Brunenberg was here, buried in the, <laughs> buried in the soil. I, I'm sure people will continue to fight against this. 
But yeah, we actually do have the, the start of archaeology on the site. Now, the actual fields, specific fields, where I think the battle took place, have not been surveyed. And they haven't been surveyed because the landowners don't want it surveyed. I suspect, I, I'm putting words in their mouth, I suppose, but I suspect because if this is in fact the battle site, it's going to be, probably be taken over by English heritage and they'll no longer be able to work those fields, right? So they kind of don't want anything to be found there. Uh, so yeah, we haven't actually done the kind of survey work that hopefully will get done. Uh, and it's one of the reasons actually I came out with the book was to try and make more uh, public awareness of this so that hopefully there can become more funding, more opportunity for this uh, to actually happen on the ground. The impetus of that, and then I actually was a conversation with Bernard Cornwell, encouraged me to, you know what, let me write a, let me write a book on this. And so, and so that's what we did. Okay. Mike, we need to pause again and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar Starnold, and I'm talking with Michael Livingston about his latest book, Never Greater Slaughter, Brunnenberg and the Birth of England. Okay? <laughs> Love it. Hey. Good pronunciation, brother. All right. Now, let, let's talk about the documentary sources that you yeah. used to help get you there. You yeah. Know, you're building your case. People are doubtful. But you've got the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Annals of Wales. Yeah. So you've got some very interesting sources. Right. They don't all agree to the same thing, though. Yeah. So they all give different names for it. Um, the name Brunenberg comes from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And that's kind of become the name that, that stuck. But when you start looking for sources on the battle, again, because it was the great battle, different people recorded it. And one of the things that is interesting about that is they didn't always call it the same thing. So wherever it was, it must not have been a terribly well-known location, right? Everybody would have the same name for so it. So there wasn't a little town or... Right. It must have been, you know, this place that one person coming referred to it as, as Bruniford, uh, re referring to the ford of the Brune, which is e either a, a river name or it could be the ford that is near a dude called Bruna. Uh, it's one of those two things. Either it's a masculine name or a feminine name of a river. Um, so one source refers to it as a ford. Another one says Bruna Field. They refer to it as a field. Another one is referring to it as a hill. Somebody else says Brunen Work which is a, a fortification associated with the, the Brune or Brune. Okay, there is a river near here, the Humber, right? Uh, the Humber River is on the other side of England. So um, there's a lot of people that want to put it on the Humber River. And, it's, and I, I, this is the biggest group that is, that is really against what we're saying. The Humber, there is a source, John of Worcester, who's uh, 200 years after the, after the battle. Uh, he says that the invading force sailed up the Humber River. So a lot of people want to put the battle over there. Now, logistically, that does makes no sense to me. That means that everybody, the, the, the Vikings have to sail from Dublin around the north of Scotland and down. Everybody's going through the North Sea. Um, this is not a good idea in, <laughs> in, in September uh, or October. Doesn't make any sense. It would require that they seized York. There's no evidence that that ever happened. And an alliance... Uh, invading and seizing York would have been noted. That would have been a big deal. Nobody notes this. Uh, what seems to be the case is that, is that John of Worcester, or the source he's using, has confused uh, an assault that is made by the English against the Scots three years earlier, 934. He's confused that with the events of 937. And so he has this idea of things happening on the Humber. That's the best explanation for what's happened there because nothing else fits with that notion. Mm -hmm. None of our other sources say it. It doesn't work well with the land, with the logistics, anything. Everything fits, on the other hand, if we put it on the other side of England okay. and we put it on the Wirral. You know, then, we're, then we look at all these different names. So the Annals of Wales you mentioned, that says Bellum Brun. Uh, so the war at Brun. Probably, again, this river name, Brun. And we got the ford and we got the field and the hill. And sort of taking all these different words, different descriptions that are given and triangulating all that with where is the Roman road? Where is the stuff that we need for a battle like this is, is how I've sort of gotten down to it was probably in this spot or close to it. Well, there actually is on your map a Roman road yeah. 
that goes all the way to Chester, which is near, very near. Yeah. So the Roman road runs right down the spine of the Wirral Peninsula, near as we can tell, and goes to Chester, which is a, a fairly major city. And there it picks up probably the biggest Roman road in England, which is Watling Street. It'll go straight down to London. Uh, so this is a great location for an invading force. There's a great harborage there that they're able to, you know, this 500, 600 ships, whatever it is that, that comes ashore. I see the number of vessels. That's, that's stag- astounding as well. It's staggering. Yeah. There, there are records of other fleets coming in, like 300, you know, ships in a, in a fleet that gets mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle earlier for an earlier fight. Um, but this, yeah, it's another, it's another level. Um, it's a staggering number. All right. Are these ships, as we think of Viking ships that might hold what? 25, 30? Uh, they could hold upwards of 100, some of these things. They're, some of these things are huge, but they are exactly what, what you're kind of picturing as like kind of a, like a long ship kind of thing. It's that structure. Um, that works really super well in the Irish Sea, in the North Sea. It works super good. This is going to be what most of these ships are going to be. But also, I mean, uh, this many ships, you know, again, they're, they're pretty much anything that floats, I imagine. I mean, this is sort of I hate to keep going back to like, you know, World War II or something like this, but, you know, getting out of Dunkirk, it was like whatever, whatever you got. Whatever right? it floats. You're yeah. Gonna... <laughs> if it floats, get over there. Uh, this is going to be something like this. This is like, if it can get us, you know, get part of our army across, let's do it. So it would have been a wide variety, but I, I think people wanting to picture it, I would, I would myself picture that kind of long ship idea of what a Viking ship would look like. Okay. And they're all coming on this. But yeah, the 600 ships maybe. Um, it requires a huge harborage, and there is such a harborage in this very place. First of all, it would have taken all that many ships. They wouldn't have all landed at the same time. They couldn't have been that coordinated. But I guess this is what gives Athelstan the time to muster his forces yes. to go up there. Yes, exactly, exactly. And this is one of these things that kind of gets you know, forgotten, I think, by a lot of people because they imagine an army, army went from point A to point B, and a lot of people in their head just kind of like imagine that as these points, but it, it's not. It's, it's 10,000 men. That's not a single point, right? That's, that is a train that arrives over the course of a lot of time. And in the case like this where it's coming by sea, right, that amplifies that amount of time that it's going to take to make the landing, as it were, right? So they're coming in in waves, you know, getting on and off a long ship, even on the best of circumstances, takes a lot of time. Uh, we've got probably some linguistic things that are having to happen because we've got Scots, Britons, and Vikings. They don't all speak the same language. Having to negotiate all this stuff, who's, who's marching where? Who's in charge? Who's, it, it, was, it was something that took a lot of time on that beachhead, and I think you're absolutely right. That's how Athelstan is able to get there. And, and then that Roman road is key because the English have an easier way to right. get there, a right. quicker way to, get, to so, respond. Yes, exactly right. Because the road is the road is an advantage to either side, right? The the invading force is going to use it to get into the heart of England. That's their plan. But by that same token, that's what enables Athelstan and the English to rapidly get to them. Well, you mentioned earlier that paleography was what you started out with, and some of your clues have to do with how the manuscripts are written or in cases typographical errors, right. clerical yes. errors, if there were. Yeah. Yeah, this is the reason I went into uh, paleography. You get access to additional clues that might explain things. So, for example, there is in one of our sources, it's called the Annals of Clonmacnoise. It says the battle happened on the plains of Othlin, O-T-H-L-Y-N. There is no Othlin. And, and the word itself like doesn't even really, like Oth really doesn't mean anything in Irish. Like it, it, this is a kind of a nonsense word. So a lot of people just sort of, just threw it out, like, well, forget what that source says. But, okay, no, this is, a, this is a source that's useful to us. What did he intend to say? Assuming it was a he. What is this source trying to present? And because I, I know how these scripts work, in the Irish script that this would have been written in, a T and a, and a C are actually made with, both made with two strokes. And they, they look more or less identical, except that the T... The, the sort of stroke that's coming down the, the right and bottom of the letter goes above the line on a T, not very much, but a little bit, as opposed to it usually stops at the top of a C. Well, I mean, we're talking about, you know, fractions of a millimeter, right? I mean, something you'd see under a scope. 
that could be the difference between this being a C and a T. And if you make it Achlin, oh, well, now it makes sense. Now it means by the pool. It, it happened at the plains by the pool. And of course, the pool would be the harborage mm-hmm. where all the ships came aboard and the plains right next to it. Well, that's exactly what we've got. So rather than you know, sort of throwing this unknown out, um, if we understand how people actually wrote, that then provides us with you know, potentially another piece of evidence that, that can support the case. And this is what drew me into paleography and the editing of manuscripts was I, I want to understand what happened in the past. These are strands of information that would otherwise, if I didn't have that training, if I didn't know that, would be lost to me. And, and that, would be, that would be a shame. All right. Well, you said once you started with your, when your book came out, you began to get lots of hate mail. <laughs> yeah, I did. What about fan mail? Yeah, I have gotten some fan mail. Fan mail's fun. A, a lot of it is, uh, you know, I've, I've walked in this area for years. I had no idea I was close to that, that close to history, you know, that kind of thing. And that's great. That's fun. And it's, it is definitely a lot more fun to get that than, the, you know, the hateful threats of violence and all that jazz. I mean, you, uh, you've actually gotten that kind of hate mail? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, and you just wrote a book. <laughs> I mean, for God's sakes. Well, you know, people get threatened by any attempt to, to, to change what they believe of the past, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the past is something that isn't set in stone. History is not set in stone. It's, it is something that is bound by what were then someone's facts that they had at hand and their interpretations of it. And as soon as someone like me comes along and says, well, you know, maybe that thing that you were taught, you know, wasn't. And you're a yank. <laughs> and, I'm a, and I'm a yank on top of that, right? So they're like, well, you got no business doing British history. You're, you're a Yankee. And you're clearly wrong because, you know, my dad told me it was in the backyard. And because I think people don't really understand how history functions, they think that any attempt to, to again, kind of change that received story is a personal threat as opposed to the natural workings of history, which is, which is what it is. And, yeah, absolutely, the, the fact that I am uh, a Yankee, uh, yeah, upsets a lot of them. It, it amuses some. I mean, Bernard Cornwell is constantly telling people, uh, how marvelous it is that it's an American who knows their history better than they do. Um, he said that. I didn't. That, does, that doesn't help. <laughs> uh, it doesn't help. No, I'm like, I'm like thanks, Bernard. Uh, put a target on my back. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I, I do say is in some respects, a, a Yankee, <laughs> to use their terminology, is the best person to be doing this. Right? I don't have a dog in this fight. It's not like, oh, well, I grew up in this area, and so I want it to be near, you know, my old homestead. History kind of written by an outsider is, is useful. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm like, why, why aren't more British historians writing about the Civil War? Like, that outside perspective could actually be quite useful. It shouldn't be something that we automatically decry, you know, how dare you as a Brit? You know, well, actually, that could be useful. But yeah, it, it is, it, yeah, I, do get a, I do get a lot of pushback. But then other people, most people don't care. Are you doing any speaking gigs in the UK? I'm, I'm just, you know... Yeah, I, I am. Uh, so I'm actually speaking at uh, the, uh, there's an Athelstan Museum where his, where his tomb is. I'll be speaking there uh, this coming summer, uh, assuming COVID allows me, obviously, to get over there. Hopefully it does. Uh, yeah, I, I do a lot of, about every year I go over for part of the summer uh, because so much of my research, well, all of my research is in Europe one way or another. You know, so I can get in the archives, I can get into the fields because you know, when I'm writing about a battle, I, I, I need to be there, right? I, I do a lot with, with satellite technologies, with, with LIDAR, you know, which is an ability to kind of erase the vegetation and sort of see the ground raw. There's so much that I can do from my office at the Citadel. But in the end, to actually really understand how a fight trans- transpired, you need to do your best to like be on that ground. One of my, my phrases I'm always teaching my, my students is a battle is its ground. And if you don't understand that ground, you can't understand the battle. Yes. Walking the battlefield, that's a very old, uh, what a lot of older American historians did. And some, you go back to the Battle of Cowpens, if you walk that battlefield, and now the way they've cleared it off the way it originally was, instead of a of Victorian garden. Victorian <laughs> garden, yes. Um, you know exactly how it unfolded. It may, you know, it's, and it's a reason why... The Army War College, Commander General Staff College, make annual pilgrimages to Cowpens to study that classical military campaign or yeah. battle. Yeah, yeah, the double envelopment that, the double. that happens there. Yeah, uh, and and the and the yeah the raw topography of it. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a, that's a great example. And, and you know, if, without being able to see the topography, you don't understand, like, you know, why, why couldn't they see part of the troops? Well, they, they couldn't because the topography, the but, way that... Because there was a little dip. Yeah, there's, this, there's a, a natural sort of dip in the terrain. And so that's why they couldn't see them. This idea that you can write about a battle without having stood there as the people who fought it did... I, 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 it's anathema to me. I just, that's wrong. You've, you've got to be there. You've got to see it because, you know, they weren't, I can look at it through a satellite. They couldn't, right? They, they approached this on foot. What were their sight lines? What were their, you know, what were their, is it actually possible? And then how did they determine their tactics from that? All right, Mike, I hate to do this, but Alfred's, this is about the third time he's given me the wind up sign. <laughs> Boo, Alfred. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? No, I, just, I would just encourage people, you know, like history is not written in stone. History is lived. It is experienced. And the more you can get out there and live and experience it for yourselves, yeah, do it. Get out there. It's good stuff. Okay. All right. Well, Michael Livingston, the author of Never Greater Slaughter, Berlin Burr, and the Birth of England. Thank you for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Mike Livingston is a fascinating individual and a very good writer. The Birth of England by an English professor at an American college? Heaven forbid. It made headlines on both sides of the Atlantic. Discovering or rediscovering the Battle of Brennenburg is a fascinating tale. And while it is not American history, it is English history, and therefore a part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.